I think all parents of all generations want their children to thrive. Everyone has hopes and dreams. To, to be a parent is to hope and to have those dreams for your children. So, you know, parents, they have really strong ideas about what it means to live the good life for their children, to survive and flourish and so forth. And so these parents, you know, you could hear it in their voices. They're real quick about coming up with ideas about their kids' full hearts, full lives, purpose, fulfill God's unique uh, purpose for their, for their life, God's will for their life, joy, security, not to want for anything, to have for things uh, materially and strive towards a goal and aspire to something, to fulfill something large in life. I, I think um, here during Advent leading up to Christmas, Mary and Joseph had those same sort of dreams for Jesus. And I think we can all safely assume that Mary and Joseph wanted Jesus and his siblings to thrive. They wanted him to do more than just survive. They wanted him to thrive. Of course, um, not too many parents get you know, visited by angels and have visions about your kids and their destiny and their first child. So that's a bit different for those two. They kind of had a better idea maybe what their child's life was going to turn out like. But Mary's song that we all sang and that we listened to when Pastor Marta read the scripture, Mary's song goes well beyond this normal thriving for Jesus. Her son, Jesus, will scatter the proud, bring down the powerful, lift up the lowly, fill the hungry, and send the rich away empty and cause an entire nation, an entire people to get back on the right foot and thrive well beyond just one individual life. This encompassed an entire people and nation, their destiny. So I have to wonder these days, and what we ought to be wondering in the room this morning is, are our children truly thriving? Are we doing the right thing? We think we're doing the right thing, but are we really doing the right thing? So in this wonderful, affluent, American suburban world that we've all created and that we live in like ours, I wonder if our children are truly thriving. So no question that all of us are trying as hard as we can to give our kids a chance to succeed in this life. So in fact, you know, I think people move to the suburbs, whether consciously or unconsciously, precisely to get their kids to thrive and succeed. The suburbs seem the right place to get that done. But, and it's a big but, is it actually working and is it actually accomplishing the things that we want them to have in this life? Are our children truly thriving when we live in middle-class suburbia? Is that actually happening? And the answer comes back that it's a bit of a mixed bag. In a famous uh, research study, that I've been pouring over all fall, uh, conducted by University of Pennsylvania professor, uh, Dr. Annette LaRoe. Um, and it's a fairly famous study, turned into a book called uh, Unequal Childhoods. Uh, LaRoe compared the families of family life of poor, working class, and then middle class. And she typically lumped together the poor and the working class, and it was just the middle class. So she compared middle class to, say, working class and poor. And uh, on studying family life. And her results, still to this day, she did it in the 1990s, still to this day is shaking up uh, school educators, 
therapist, psychologist, social scientist, and preachers as well. And so I think we have something to hear from her about whether or not our kids are actually thriving. LaRoe found that working class kids were better, were better at creativity, having fun, using their imagination. Working class kids did not participate in extracurricular activities like soccer and these sort of things. There just wasn't the money. They didn't do horseback riding. They didn't do theater and so forth. The most common thing that the working class kids and the poor kids participated in was church and choir at church, probably because it didn't cost any money. Working class kids, uh, working class kids learned how to go to McDonald's all on their own. They figured out how to feed themselves, how to open a can of soup and manage things like that. They had jobs and responsibilities around the home. They figured out how to catch a bus if they wanted to go somewhere. And um, they made up games out in the street most often with just a stick and a can or whatever they could find. They could figure out with using their imagination on how to actually get along in life. Working class families watch a lot of television together. Working class families do not talk as much as middle class families. Uh, They don't talk about world events. They don't discuss uh, school projects or homework or, uh, and they don't constantly massage a calendar and a schedule like middle class families do. Working class families live most of the time in the evening in a comfortable silence where they're all just fine being together around the television. And working class homes, children are quite aware of the family's money situation. They know what bills have to be paid. They know what's going on with the finances. Not so in middle class. Working class understand that there just isn't money for extra stuff. And so they don't throw a fit when they don't get to do something because they just know it's not a reality. And in working class families, if a young child says, dancing around the living room, watch me, parents and relatives, they might watch the child or they might not. There's no applause or good job or anything like that. They're all just fine. Now, in middle-class homes, the schedule is the dominant topic. That's pretty much the topic all the time is the schedule of the kids and the family. Middle-class kids are focused on the next opportunity that they can participate in, and their parents cultivate a tight schedule of opportunities to succeed. So talk in the home is about when a child needs to get to baseball practice or go to piano lessons. Registration fees are only referenced in, did you get my registration fee paid? Did that get taken care of? And the kids don't know much about how much the registration fee is. They're not really concerned about whether or not it's a lot or a little. They don't really know and understand, nor do they care, nor are they taught to care much about the finances in middle class. Um, Middle-class families in the 1990s spent around $4,000 a year in extracurricular activities, cultivating a competency of learning how to do sports. That includes uh, football pads and, you know, every other uniform you got to buy and all the T-shirts and the PTA and all the rest of it. Compared to happy-go-lucky, easy-breezy working-class kids, middle-class kids were often found to be exhausted and bored. 
They may be very, very busy uh, with family, like during the holidays, particularly like at Christmas time or whatever, and yet walk in at nine o'clock at night to the kitchen and say to mom, I'm bored, even though they've had a full day of doing all sorts of stuff. So the assumption in middle-class homes then is that it's the parent's responsibility to fill up the child's schedule. It's the parent's responsibility to make sure the kid's not bored because boredom could be a threat to success. So part of the usual conversation in middle-class homes is, where are my cleats? Is my uniform washed? I need a black dress for my recital. I need a black shirt. This sort of thing, okay? Of course, middle-class kids have huge sophisticated vocabularies. They can discuss complex world events on the news. Um, Middle-class kids look at teachers and coaches in the eye. They stick out their hand. They know how to make polite niceties. How are you doing? I'm fine. How's the weather? They know how to manage authority. As a matter of fact, for the most part, if there's a problem going on in school, it may not be the kid, the middle-class kid's fault. It's probably the school's fault. Because they see themselves as equal with teachers and principals and this sort of thing. Same thing goes on in doctor's offices and dentists and so forth. They see themselves as equal. Their opinion, they may need a second opinion. Because they may not know what they're talking about when you go to the doctor. So, um, parents of middle class children work a second shift, as it's been called in other books. After school, they work a second shift hauling kids all over town, sitting in the bleachers for hours, watching, applauding, sifting through emails on their phone, and dinner is often had on the run later at night, not sitting around a dinner table. In the end, LaRoe's study, and now other studies that are like it, have found that middle-class parents view their children as projects. They view their children as hothouse plants. But working-class parents view their children as wildflowers that are just supposed to grow on their own. They don't really take that active sort of a part. This has nothing to do with whether middle-class or working-class love their kids. Just like Mary and Joseph and every parent, they all love their kids. But there are different strategies on how you go about helping your kid to thrive. Middle-class parents transfer their wealth to their children early and they continue to transfer it even after the middle class kids have moved out of the home. They pay for college, they'll make in-house loans for cars, get rid of that PMI off of the uh, first house purchase, the mortgage interest and that sort of thing. They transfer the wealth and so actually middle class parents become somewhat poor as their kids go into adulthood. But it flips for working class in working class homes when the kid turns 18 You're on your own. Go get a job. Matter of fact, if you're sticking around the house, you better be paying rent. And then working class parents, actually their income goes up when the kids move out. And they become actually richer later in life. So, but middle class are busy investing in Roth IRAs and uh, college saving 529 plans and and making all these sorts of loans and so forth. These, These hot house project kids. Working class parents then don't treat their kids that way because they just think they're the wildflowers. All we need to do is turn them loose and they will flourish on their own. Now, 
I tell you all this in a sermon on Sunday morning at church, not because we're in sociology class or anything like that, but because thriving and flourishing is deeply spiritual work. It is soul work. Thriving cannot simply be measured in terms of education and money and worldliness and connections. That's not the entirety of thriving. All of these tools are of power and success. And there is nothing evil about all of this, of course, innately evil. But it can leave middle class homes with a soulless busyness, a scurrying, racing around that become machines of efficiency and worldly competencies and may not focus on children truly thriving. When Mary and Joseph were raising Jesus and his siblings, if you go back 2,000 years, everyone was pretty much working class. There was only a very few aristocrats. And if you go into the Jewish world, the idea of the home was this Hebrew word that we've all heard, which is shalom, which we translate as peace. But it means more than just peace. It means to be able to lie down. As a matter of fact, you don't need to go any further than the 23rd Psalm to understand shalom. The entire 23rd Psalm is all about shalom. So let's work on it here. Um, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then you say. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Amen. That, everyone, is shalom. That is shalom. Everything our parents said on a little video earlier all gets encapsulated in this, doesn't it? To be able to lie down, to not be in want, to have your cup overflow. It's absolute peaceful shalom. There's something to this idea of shalom for parenting, everyone. Shalom means completeness or wholeness, if you go to the dictionary on shalom, the Hebrew dictionary. It's complete or full, like when two parties come together and they pay each other off. When everyone's satisfied, I paid you off my loan that I owed you, and you say, it's good. And everyone says, we're over. The loan's paid. It's all complete. It's good. Jesus, then, is our shalom because our debt's been paid in full. When two parties complete an obligation to one another, then there is shalom. Nobody owes anybody anything. They've come to an agreement. Or shalom is the perfect weight, like a weight in a scale balance, like in the marketplace back in Jesus' time. You would have put a weight in there. The weight would have called, if it was perfect, it was the perfect weight, it was called shalom because it's a complete weight. The weight brings a just transaction. 
So there's justice involved in this. But my favorite biblical use of the word shalom is that of stones used to make the altar in the temple. Because the temple stones in the altar for the altar are complete because they are not hewn. They are uncut. They're field stones. They were not to be carved or shaped. The altar was meant to be made out of uncut stone. Natural, wild stone for the sacrifices of God. That made them complete. The stones of Shalom don't need any sort of massaging or work done on them. Dr. LaRoe came to the starting conclusion in her study. Middle class families have something to learn from working class families. Unshaped, uncut children might be more at peace than highly shaped, carved children. Yes, middle class families will be wealthy and they will run the world to suit their wealth and their needs. Nobody goes backwards, really, and not willfully, anyway. But working class homes might be more content with what they have and don't have, even. A slow home is more homey than a fast home. Shalom homes, homes of shalom, could perhaps resemble more the uncut wild stones of the altar in the temple and the wildflowers of working class parents. So while we have very little information about how Mary and Joseph conducted their homes, we can ponder a bit. We can speculate a little bit about Mary and Joseph's parenting technique, if you want to call it that. Mary and Joseph, you know, this little story here um, about Jesus wandering off when they took a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and Jesus remains in the temple. Now, I think you're going to get this idea of Joseph being a carpenter, and that's probably how he raised his kid, right? And Mary as well. Because it took Mary and Joseph three days to realize that their kid wasn't with them, that he was probably back in Jerusalem somewhere. I don't know what a wild flower is unless it's that. Like, you know, if your kid was missing for three days, there'd be all sorts of amber alerts and everything going on. But not them. They're like, hey, where's the kid? Ah, we got to walk all the way back. And that's what they go to do. I, I actually love the text right here. And, and my uh, Michael Garozo voice here isn't going to let me to say it the way I want to. But, uh, you know, in Luke chapter 2, verse 48, um, they find Jesus. And Mary has an earful for Jesus when she finds him. So, parents, don't think Mary is all that perfect. Because here's what she says. Child... Why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. Now, that sounds nice and formal, and it sounds like you could say it with a British accent, but I actually probably think it sounded more like, child, what you been treating us like this for? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. There, you know, I mean, is that going to go on? Can she do that? I don't know, you know. Advent is all about slowing down. Advent home is slow home. Contrary to Christmas songs about busy sidewalks and people passing and shoppers rushing, rushing home with their treasures and silver bills and all that, Christmas is about slowing and reflecting on Christ, the Christ child, 
a baby that had nowhere else to be other than in its mother's arms. Slow home. So get your shopping done now, everyone. Don't wait to the last minute because you're on a journey here for the next couple of weeks of getting slower and slower. Refuse to be manipulated by yourself of caving in to busyness as though you're just going to rush towards the end of Christmas Eve and then collapse. It's a bad way to do Christmas. And it's probably a really bad way to shape your children during this time. Because will your children then end up thinking that, you know, what we did at Christmas time is we ran all over town to Grandma and Uncle Harold's house. And we had to go here and we had to go there and go to this party and all that. And then they'll move away where they don't have to do anything. And then in 15 years, they just duplicate what you did. Instead, the picture for the uncut stones and the wildflowers is to simply just hang out. Christmas is about slowing down. Don't bite off more than you can chew. Middle class, use your buy with one click instead of racing all over the place. When you're playing with your children, this just goes for any old good time, Stop checking your email and your social media while your toddler's on the floor. Lock eyes with them and pay attention. In Numbers, the blessing that you read in Numbers the, that's used in churches all the time, you know, may the Lord cause his face to shine upon you, all of that. There is this idea of a parent taking their hand and lifting the child's chin and locking eyes with them. Because love pays attention. And it just simply says with a look, I love you, I value you. Sitting here with your phone saying, I love you, I value you, doesn't sound exactly like lifting the chin, the face of God, the panah. That's what you're supposed to be doing. That's Christmas. That's when your kids will sit around someday and say, Christmas in my home was a garden. And the traditions that we have, I would love to create those with my children. An unhurried pace where we all just hung out. Tracking with me? I think we have something to learn from Mary and Joseph, even if we don't know exactly how they led their household. May your home this Christmas be a shalom, a shalom home. May you be able to lie down in green pastures. May you lift your child's chin and just simply say, I'm just happy to be here with you. I don't have anywhere else to be but right here with you doing nothing. And then we'll understand Christmas. Lord, pray, Lord, that um, moms and dads, grandparents, aunts and uncles in the room right now will embrace the idea of the 23rd Psalm. That they'll want to lie down in a green pasture with their family and just simply hang out. Nowhere to be. 
no crazy schedule, just simply a slowing, waiting and waiting in anticipation for the best gift ever from God, his son, the Messiah. May we embrace this. May we ruthlessly eliminate the hurry from our lives. And may we just simply be present with one another here for the next few weeks. In the name of Jesus, and we all said, amen.